You are, you are listening to Making Bank, where we uncover the mindset and success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business. business. Welcome to Making Bank. I am Josh Felber, where we uncover the mindset and the success strategies of the top 1% so you can amplify your life and your business today. Today's guest, he started his entrepreneurial career at his family business, where he was the executive vice president and responsible for the strategic and operational and financial strategy of the $21 million company. Ryan helped turn this company around, bring intentional focus and the right strategies, which enabled it to be sold for eight figures to a local competitor in 2014. He then took his experience and founded Arcona to create the international growth framework, which helps owners just like you grow the value of their company with the end in mind through educational training, fractional CFO services, and strategic planning. Ryan is a passionate and energetic and highly skilled communicator who loves his work and the message that he delivers. Both through keynote presentations he frequently delivers are near and dear to his heart because they tell the story and the solutions to the challenges that he had when he was running his family business. Since founding Arcona, he has been able to teach other entrepreneurs and business owners what he wishes he would have known before they sold their company, which how to clarify a path to a more valuable business with the end in mind. So business owners can turn their visions into reality. And you also got to check out Ryan. He hosts a popular podcast called Intentional Growth. So I'm excited to welcome Ryan Tansom to Making Bank today. Josh, thanks so much, man. This is going to be fun. Yeah, for sure. Uh, super excited to have you on the show and kind of dive in and really figure out what you learned, kind of what some of that uh, challenges were as you were running that business and then uh, what what uh, the different things that you're teaching entrepreneurs today. So um, give us a little bit of your background. Obviously, you had a family business. <laughs> and Oh, yeah, uh, man. It, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it all started uh, selling copiers, man. <laughs> So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, nothing nothing glamorous. I was just listening to one of your episodes talking about Web3, and I'm like, yeah, no, we're going to be talking about <laughs> <Right>. copiers. <laughs> well, I, I remember the copier sales. I mean, all, like, I don't know if much people use copiers these days, but. <laughs> oh, it's great, man. Yeah, so it started when my dad mortgaged our house and bought a uh, semi-truck full of copiers for a quarter million bucks. And uh, essentially, the rest is history, man. And we topped off at about $21 million in revenue, 115 employees. And I swore my grave would never go work for him. Very typical of a second generation. And uh, lo and behold, work, you know, I ended up working at the family business in 09, going full time. And to the clip note version, Josh, is we lost almost a million bucks that year. And we spent the next six years turning it around. So a quarter million dollar payroll every two weeks. What do we got to yep. do to make this thing viable for me? Because I wanted, I wanted to take this generator or the next, uh, I wanted to take this asset and grow it and, you know, conquer the world. Like a lot of people on the, on the call here and, and essentially we couldn't figure it all out and ended up selling. Well, we figured it all out, but my dad and I couldn't get aligned on like, what did, what's the next stage of the growth and how does our partnership work and all the dynamics that a lot of us uh, struggle with. And so we ended up selling it, paid a lot of taxes, paid a lot of debt. And I, all of a sudden I went from running a $20 million company to sit next to an intern in a cube. And I went, what the hell was that? <laughs> so that was, that was 2014 kind of set the, set the trajectory in place. No, that's that's awesome. I mean, obviously taking the business and turning it around. I mean, what I guess what did you bring or I guess 
that you didn't really know that you brought to the table, you know, that helped you guys kind of change that trajectory of the business and everything? A lot of it, there's kind of two ways to answer that, Josh. And a a lot of it is what we did in that moment over Mm. almost a decade ago or a little bit more, which is out of pure grit, right? Like just double down. Like we built out the managed IT services, rebranded, built out software automation to become the, you know, B2B tech, you know, business to business technology provider. And it was out of pure like grit and hard work, just selling more and trying to scale. And the way I would answer it now of what we should have done is focused on growing a valuable asset, not focused on annual income. And that's kind of like the way that I differentiate a lifestyle business versus like essentially, you know, you talk about the top 1%, they're focusing on growing an asset that's going to create them choices and leverage and wealth and all the other things. But it's kind of like the shift in mindset of, hey, solving for annual income versus like, hey, if we reinvest in this company, what's it worth long term? Gotcha. And, you know, kind of break that down a little bit because, you know, with a lot of entrepreneurs that are watching like, well, you know, I'm growing top line and, you know, I got some profit and, you know, and we did a million last year. Now we're doing 5 million. You know, is, aren't, aren't I creating a valuable asset? Am I not, you know, creating, you know, that? Mm-hmm. So kind of break that down, how you see that and what that looks like. Yeah. Great question. So like, I would say that the first thing is like the defining a valuable asset versus lifestyle business. So we had a $20 million business. A lot of people would say, well, that's not a lifestyle business, but it all depends on what you're doing with it. So the way that I would define lifestyle business, Josh, is that you're, you're taking as you're optimizing for annual income. So how much money can I pull out of this company every year through distributions, through perks, whatever it is, your wages, instead of saying, hey, what's this thing worth? And if I reinvest that money, what is the company going to be worth long term? And so it's really that shift in mindset. And so going back to your question about revenue and like scale and scale, and I remember sitting, Josh, sitting like, and I'm like the youngest guy for like, and mainly dudes owning copier companies. And like, right. we 20 million, we did 40 million. And I'm like, how much did you make last year? That's kind of important because we're selling copiers at below cost. So sure. like, I just one, I, I'm just like, I'm just this idiot 22 year old just asking why. And I just kept getting bad answers, man. And I'm just like, isn't it, doesn't it matter how much we take home and what this thing's worth? And like, it's amazing. So like, just because you had optimizing your top line revenue, it's about cash flow. And there's, if there's one takeaway, man, from anybody on the, on the show right now is, your company is based, the value is based on how sustainable, predictable, and transferable that cash flow is. And then you at least have this baseline of what that value is. And then you've got choices of who and well you want to sell it to at a strategic premium if you want to. But your company has a value tied to how sustainable and predictable and transferable your cash flow is, which isn't a direct correlation to revenue. Obviously, more revenue should hopefully yield more profits and more cash flow. Not always, man. And I came from an industry where that was not necessarily optimizing for cash flow. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, because obviously if you're selling copiers below (laughs) what they're costing you and you're paying salespeople and operations and lights and everything. Yeah. Well, and the the, the business ended up turning into the razor, razor blade kind of model, which is get the gear out. And like a lot of our, like one of the metrics we always used to uh, look at is machines in field. Cause there was a kind of a like, Hey, if you get a bunch out, you know, the, the recurring contracts are very profitable, man. And then you can stack on manage it services, document management, other things that should sure. yield more cash flow. But the goal is like, why are you doing that? Like if you're going to sell below cost, hopefully there's a return down the road. It just kind of goes back to that shifting of the mindset of like, we want more cash flow to have a more valuable company. And that's kind of similar, you know, even now too with the e-com companies, you, you know, and they know, okay, you know, I can 
sell this product and you know it can spend X in advertising. So we're going to go at a loss for six months or three months or whatever that mm-hmm. number is uh, feasible to that business. And then you know, and then at that point, we know based on the reoccurring model or additional um, lifetime value and things like that that you know we're actually going to make a profit. And that you kind of mm-hmm. guys were doing that with the copiers. <laughs> hundred percent, man. And like, it, it, I think it's so interesting. I'll tell a story about this, uh, this guy that was in one of my CEO peer groups, man. And like, so he's, like, he sold essentially, let's just make it up. He sold railings to the tops of buildings. And it's like, well, I just want to double my company. Everybody wants to double their company. I do. But he goes, <laughs> I want to go from 5 million, 5 million to 10 million in revenue. Okay. So then I asked a couple questions. Do you have, is your manufacturer, do you have an exclusive with your manufacturer? He's like, no. Okay. Can your manufacturer go direct? Yeah. I'm like, you could double the revenue of your company and you know, you could have more cash flow potentially, but there's still that risk that the manufacturer goes, no more, Josh, we're not going to have you sell our, our railings anymore and we're going to go direct. Company's gone like that. Mm-hmm. And so the risk of the cash flow is so important, man. Like, and, and, and it's, I want to break down maybe a couple concepts of how to think about sure. value because I think so many people get so tied up into fair market value, equity value, enterprise value, all these terms that fly all over the place. But right. how do you think about value? And before I go into this, there's this phrase that I want to like eradicate from people's word, from their vocabularies. I'll never know what my company's worth until I take it to market and someone writes me a check. And that's not true because we all know that private equity right now is on a rampage because they buy companies, they know what they're worth, they grow them and they sell them for a profit, just like real estate. Sure. So like... You can know that. And so what you can know until you sell it is there's, I want to compare two topics. One is intrinsic financial value, which is the value of your company based on the risk of the cash flow. That's where an SBA loan will do, do a deal off of that. They'll underwrite to it. You can do an internal buyout like that, an ESOP by selling your employees. You can dig your heels in and prove it to a private equity firm just based on the cash flow. Then there, that, that intrinsic value and financial value is compared to the strategic transaction value where a buyer might come out who's a strategic buyer and pay a premium, but it's going to be a premium on, it starts from a knowable number. They don't just pull it out of thin air and say, okay, right. this is what I'm going to pay you. Like and they say, I'm gonna, this is kind of what it's worth. This is worth what it's worth to us. And so they might pay a premium. Contrast that to someone that what we call the transaction, transaction value where there's a buyer and a seller that come to the table. And then there's the emotions, man. There's the people, there's the deal fatigue and there's the deal hype. And so there's a premium or a discount. The discount might be like, we work with a lot of family businesses where the parents don't need the money. So then they'll, they'll discount it and gift it to the kids via an estate plan. But it start, my point is, take, the takeaway is you can track and measure the value of the business based on the risk of the cash flow, which is a knowable equation that you can focus on while you're growing the company. And for that, you know, like there's like... um you, like I've seen is, you know, your run rate. So like, you know, if you, people ask and, you know, the amount of cash you can sustain if you weren't bringing in any more sales and mm-hmm. stuff, I mean, is that kind of play into that? And, is, and then what kind of is that uh, number? Is it a three month number? Is it a 12 month number or 24 month? You know, what, what, what does that look like? So it's a good entry point into the financials. And man, like, again, we started this, I was a copier salesperson. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I was not a CPA. I was not a financial engineer. I was not a quant or any of that stuff off of billions. Like I was a copier salesperson. So I learned this out of figuring out that this is how the game is played. 
Like, you know, when you're talking about mergers and acquisitions and trading companies and private equity, like they're focusing on value and value creation and then building value long term. And so when you're thinking about like your run rate and like, you know, you're talking about how much cash is in your bank. Like there's a, sure. there's a certain level of com- that's a comfort level, right? So personally, I don't know if you want six months of cash in your personal bank account or 12 months, that's your call. And that's part of your net worth, right? So like that, that cash would be on your balance sheet. But I want to talk about what's so interesting, man, is there are three financial statements. I didn't make any of this stuff up. So you got your income statement, your balance sheet, and your cash flow statement. And they're all tied together. And Josh, the amount of people that don't look at the cash flow statement is insane. Like sure. so many times people will be like, oh, that's for the bankers. The balance sheet's for the bankers and for leverage and figuring out how much I can borrow or the cash flow statement. I don't need to know that. However, there's this line on the cash flow statement that talks that that you can really hone in that tells the whole story of the business. And it's the net cash flow provided by operating activities. How much money came into the business and came out and how much was left over. And then you figure out what you want to do with it. So like every private equity firm or professional investor will go right to that number on the cash flow statement. And if you don't have them built, they're going to rebuild your three financial statements time together to go, okay, Josh's company has net operating cash flow or cash flow provided by operating activities of a positive 2 million bucks. Then the question is how sustainable, predictable, and transferable is that cash flow? So I don't know if that directly answers your question of like, yeah, cash in the bank is one thing, but right. we're trying to figure out is the, the cash at the end of every month growing or not? Sure. Just that yeah. simple. Are you looking at that then to be just sitting there or moving back into the business? Like, I guess, what do they want to see or what is a, the best scenario? So what, yeah, what, what do you do with that information is the question. I think you're, is yep. a great question. And it's, you can either take it home and distributions, which, you know, like, for example, I got off a, a training call with, uh, with these business owners. Their goal is to maintain a quarter million dollar distribution as a passive investor in the business, hire a GM, and then they can collect that money. And then they can figure out how much more to put back into the business to continue to hit the growth rate. So essentially, you, you have like this, these trade-offs of, okay, here's my growth rate and my growth opportunity in the marketplace. Right. And then you go, okay, well, how much is that going to cost? We have to figure out how to fund that growth. And then you say, okay, well, how much do I want to take out of the business as distributions? That's another thing that's there. You got to pay your taxes. You should. <laughs> and so then you go down and say, okay, well, if that's a negative number, what do we do about it? Do we want to tamp down growth a little bit? Which there's people, man, there are people that have been on my podcast like, I had to sell the private equity or get funding because I was growing at 30% year over year and I should have grown at 20%. And I would still have my company. Because they grew too fast. And my dad and I almost ran into that issue too. Yeah. With like, so you can have a positive net income and a negative use of cash. Right. Most people don't realize. So that my point is, is like, it, going back to your question is once you have visibility into that, then you say, well, how much do I want to take out? And if I want to reinvest, let's say at a million bucks and you had to want to reinvest a half a million dollars, make sure it de-risks your cash flow. So it increases the multiple. And the value of the business. So it's almost like just to make it very simple, like for real estate, you got your cap rate, let's say it's 15%. That's a high cap rate, which means sure. the value of the commercial real estate or real estate's lower. You know, if you yep. go and buy a Walgreens, it's like a 5% and the value of the real estate's higher. Businesses are the exact same thing. So you're trying to figure going, you're trying to figure out what should I do with that money to increase the value of the company, the intrinsic value of the company, which everybody can control. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. And then you mentioned, you know, kind of as you're growing, you know, the example you brought up, you know, 
if they would have not grown at 30%, you know, and then having to go get outside capital and things like that and back at 20%, what then what are those kind of like indicators where you're like, okay, we need to slow growth down? Because obviously, you know, mm-hmm. you're always like, always like, all right, scale, 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 scale. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to grow the business, but then it's like too much, too fast. It sounds like it's not a good thing, obviously, either if you have to go get capital from private equity or something. Right. And if you, if you raised a bunch of funds from VC and that's the, the burn is part of the equation, right? So right. the whole goal, the whole goal is to say, what, what are we trying to accomplish? What's the valuation? What's the exit that we're trying to hit? And then you're backing into that. And so like the business model will be a big indicator of how much you use cash. And so for example, my old business, and we work at a lot of companies where you're, if you're a distributor and you're sitting on a bunch of inventory and then you're buying product and then you're selling it to someone, you have receivables. So our mm. receivables, Josh, exploded like millions of dollars of receivables. That's not cash. You can't pay your payroll with receivables. Right. right? So that's what I'm saying is like, so when you're asking like, what, can, what are the leading indicators? If your receivables are growing and you're sitting on a lot of inventory, your business model will be a big indicator in how effectively you're using that cash. You know, in the e-commerce space, like you mentioned, so many people use other people's money because they get customer deposits. It's a beautiful thing, man. You're mm. using other people's cash to to run your business. So the faster you're growing, you're getting more deposits faster. So you're not going to typically run into that issue. However, man, I have seen as we've onboarded clients, a negative equity in a business. It's almost like think about negative equity in your house. That means you're way over leveraged and your house is yeah. way worth less than the debt. People will take money out in distributions and it's like, dude, you owe someone a product or a service. So that's not your money, right? Like you're going to have to go mm. buy something and then deliver it. And so right. it's really just understanding that cash flow to then say, based on my growth rate and how much I want to take out of this company, what can, how can I afford to grow? And if you're, if you're short, then you go, okay, what kind of investor do I need? Do I need a normal bank line, increase my bank line? Do I need to go to private equity? Or is it a SaaS product that's a moonshot and I need to go raise you know, money from a VC firm? But it becomes a lot more obvious because you're like looking at a gap and you're saying, okay, yep. well, how am I going to fill this? What, and you know, as we're growing and as, as entrepreneurs, a lot of times, you know, we love it. We get started. We're growing. You know, the company's building and things like that. And maybe we're not initially thinking, oh, cool, I'm building this to sell it. I'm just building it because I love it. And I love what I'm doing and everything else. You know, but five, 10 years down the road, you're like, oh, man that would be kind of nice one day to start to sell my business. What are some of the things that we should have been looking at, like to start putting in place, you know, if we mm-hmm. were able to rewind five years, you know, start putting those things in place to have it ready, you know, those five years down the road to be able to, um, you know, have it for sale to create the maximum value and things like that. I think the word that we're looking for here is options. <laughs> like, I don't know, man, I have risked a ton in my entrepreneurial career, like rolling the dice, spending tons of money, lots of failures, lots of moonshots. And and my question is like, I just want options. The moment that I change my idea, I like a different thing or I want to do something else. I want to not have to sacrifice everything I've done thus far. So, you know, this, I think that the word exit just gets a lot of, you know, a lot of negative connotations to it. And really, I mean, if we're talking, we're, we're, we're talking about being the game of an, an investor in our own company. Like, so the first key component to, to viewing it that way, when you said like from day one, 
you have a job that you get a paycheck for and wages for whatever it is. And don't do minial, you know, minuscule work, outsource all the lower level stuff. But the reality is we all have a job. You and I both are working in our companies right now. We get a paycheck for it, but you also have an ownership. You're on the cap table, right? You're sitting there and you have equity in this asset. So understanding how to grow that asset from day one to say, Hey, I want this thing to be worth 5 million bucks, whatever it is. So I can have the choices to hire the general manager a quarter million dollars and live my best life ever with my family and travel and be a board member. Sure. I like, I don't really care what anybody wants. I want them to articulate it very clearly and then have the roadmap to go get it. Cause like in that example, out of 300 podcast episodes, man, like the amount of people that have been on my podcast and they weren't intentional is most. It's like, Oh, I just randomly did all this stuff. And then someone just knocked on my door and I sold it and I was very lucky. And they like, I could wrap up about a quarter or two quarter or half, two quarters, half of my episodes of that was that you were completely lucky and hustled your butt off and you just randomly had someone that picked off your company, paid a premium, but there were no other options. Mm. And so like, if you focus on saying, Hey, what do I want? What do I want this company? What's that? What do I want this company to be worth? What is my desire for my ideal lifestyle? And you're baking that into your plan. That's like, I, again, it's intentional, man. You, like you say, here's exactly what I want my life, my business and everything to look like. And then you're building the plan to go get that. Then it becomes a decision-making framework. Just, so if you came to me and said, hey, Ryan, I want to buy 60% of your business. And then I'm going to go, well, what are the, at what price? And what are you planning on doing with it? And then I can put that against my decision-making framework to say, no, thank you. Because that's going to impact my lifestyle and what I want with the business long-term. Or yes, your motives as an investor are the same as mine and we're aligned. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Obviously, you know, as entrepreneurs and stuff, you know, we, you know, and like you said, half your shows, <laughs> people got lucky or, you know, they just hustled and, and then somebody was knocking on their door. Do you think, or based on you talking with them, would they have liked other options or was, I mean, were they happy with the options that they took or the options? Most people are not. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's a, it's a good, good call out. And I read a book, Josh, um, when after we had sold, it's called Finish Big by Bo Burlingham. He was the editor of Inc. Magazine. He's been on my podcast a couple of times. And he he interviewed like 350 entrepreneurs when he wrote this book. And he found out like 75% of them were miserable after they sold, regardless of how much money they made. And I can Mm -hmm. absolutely validate that. And it's because they didn't know who they were, what they wanted from their business and why. They never sat down and said, what do I want as a lifestyle? And as like, essentially, what is this whole thing for? Then sure. put a plan in place. And I was absolutely part of the 25% that was miserable. I fired 80% or six. We fired, well, we didn't fire technically when we sold. They, they brought on like 33 or 34 of the 90 employees. That's all they needed. It was like gotcha. one of the hardest days of my life, man. And if I would have, I'm going to give you an exa- my example from my personal story is we had two offers. One of them was almost double the other offer. One of the mm-hmm. offers was the, the one that was half was based on the intrinsic financial value. So it was based on the risk of the cash flow of the company because they were going to keep the building, keep 25 cars, keep the servers, keep the people, keep everything because they wanted a sure. Minneapolis location. And so it was based on the cash flow. The other right. one, it was gut the, gut the thing. Yeah, Take all the people, take all those processes. We maximized purchase price. But I went home, man, I fired college buddies and family and friends. And, like, and I was out of a job and I'm going, huh, 
if I would have focused on growing the value based on the cash flow, I could have done an ESOP, which is selling your employees. I could have been, a, I could have worked myself up to a board member where I was clipping coupons. I mean, that's what I would have wanted, but I didn't have sure. this framework to say, Hey, like if I'm only going off of maximizing purchase price, then you're going to potentially have regrets that you don't know. And to, to your question about people on my show, man, like there's people that have sold for so much money and they're like, I don't have a platform for impact anymore. You know, they don't have thousands of customers. They don't have a reason to have a podcast. They don't have a reason to talk to their employees. And one guy, uh, Saad Juman, he's a great, great guy. He had like built like this meditation yoga retreat in his office. And then he sold. He didn't have that or any of his people anymore. And he could have monetized his company if he wanted to monetize his asset in a different way while still being the CEO. And people just don't know that. No, that, I think that's that's really good. Guys, I hope you guys are really paying attention to what Ryan's saying today and really listen and understand like, you know, what do you want out of your business? You know, what do you want that lifestyle to be? And start to really start to think about that. And that way you can start setting up those options now, not down the road and become half the people that he's interviewed that, you know, weren't happy, you know, for, for selling their company. So make sure you guys take those notes, go back, listen to this again, really pay attention and then start to ask yourself those questions, um, that Ryan's discussed today, uh, to see where you are. I know we got a few minutes left. Uh, what's something you're just like, Oh man, I was hoping Josh was going to ask me about this. Or you're like, Oh, I really want to share this before we you know wrap up today. I think it's really that you just summed it up, man. Like, what do you want? I mean, so like outside of all the noise that all of us entrepreneurs and the pressure we all put on each other, man, like we all want to scale, we want to grow, we want to make a big impact. And I'd say like, there are three things, man, out of all the interviews and all the keynotes that I've done that most of us entrepreneurs want. I think it ties a lot into your messaging here, Josh, is there are three things, create wealth, enjoy work and make an impact. And it's like a Venn diagram. And so if you're living in the middle, you're like making a lot of money, having a lot of making a lot of impact and have a lot of fun. It's like, you're just living in the flow zone, man. And I watch every time when one of those is off, people are feeling like something's missing. So you could be making a lot of money. You could be having a lot of fun. And at some point you go, why am I doing this? I got to have leave some sort of legacy, or you could be having a lot of fun, making a big impact and you're broke as hell. And you're going, <laughs> like, I need to be financially rewarded for this. So I'd say just like, you know, sit down and reflect and say, am I living in that area that I feel like this is all worth it? And then, you know, using the numbers or using a plan to track your progress, because I think if we all know that we're making progress towards our goals, then the anxiety goes down and then it's just execution mode. No, that that's that's awesome, uh, Ryan. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Where can people get more information about you? What you got going on? Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. It's Arcona.io. We have the intentional growth five principles. We got videos on there, the podcast, the financial assessment, a bunch of stuff. But it's just the website, Arcona.io. Awesome. Thanks again for watching Making Bank and get out and be extraordinary. Thank you for listening to Making Bank. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and sharing is caring. Follow Josh Felber on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram for more. You can also listen to Making Bank on Amazon Alexa, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and watch on Apple TV, Success Thinkers Network, Amazon Fire, and YouTube.